Hello, and welcome to a special bonus episode of the Bible Savvy Podcast. I'm Clayton Keenan, and today we're going to be talking about how to understand, enjoy, and apply the book of Ezekiel. This is a little different from our normal format, where we talk through one passage from the Bible Savvy Reading Plan and discuss it as a group. Instead, we're going to be getting the big picture overview of one Old Testament book, the book of Ezekiel. We're going to be reading Ezekiel over the course of the next six weeks, and here is the reality— Ezekiel is kind of a weird book. So if you're into bizarre imagery and odd behavior, Ezekiel's the book for you. And for some of us, when we encounter strange things in the Bible, our first instinct is to opt out. Maybe we try it for a few days, we lose motivation, and we just don't know what to do with it. But we don't want that to be the case for you. So that's why today I'm sitting down with Dr. Michael Graves. Dr. Graves is the Armoring Professor of Biblical Studies at Wheaton College. That's where he teaches classes primarily in the Old Testament. And when I was in grad school, I took a number of classes from him. And he was always one of my favorite professors because he combined a brilliant mind, a genuine heart for God and people, and what I thought was a good sense of humor. So I took a lot of his classes. Uh, Dr. Graves, is going to be our guide to Ezekiel today. And the way I like to think about it is this. It's almost like we're heading out on a hike in some wild and beautiful country, and we're standing at the head of the trail, and we need an expert guide who's walked the territory before us. And he can tell us how to make the most out of the journey, how to, you know, give us a heads up about twists and turns ahead, tell us the unique flora and fauna we're going to see on the way, maybe highlight places where the path is going to get steep or places where we're going to get a great vista of view that we don't want to miss. And so that's why I'm glad to have Dr. Graves with us today. So Dr. Graves, welcome to the Bible Savvy Podcast. Thank you very much, Clayton. It's always great to talk to you about the Bible and be here. And uh, Ezekiel, what a crazy book. So hopefully we'll have a fun time uh, talking about it today and hopefully give people a sense of what to look forward to as they jump into it themselves. Me, I'm hope, hoping for that, too. So this is great. Love to have you here. Um, when we start the podcast normally, we usually start with kind of a lighthearted question, something basically unrelated to what we're about to talk about, but it's just a chance <laughs> to get to know each other and and have some fun. So I'm going to start with this. What, what book movie or, or series do you wish that you could live in? Ah, uh, what that I could live in. Okay. Yeah. Not well, necessarily be a I character won't... in, but like be in the world. Yeah, sure. So I'm not going to say, um, uh, the time of Ezekiel because it's a very hard <laughs> and rough time. So uh, we'll get back to that in a minute. I won't say that. Maybe I would say if I could, uh, Lord of the Rings, if I could live in middle earth, if I could be a hobbit in Hobbiton during a time of peace. Ah, yes. Yeah, you don't so you don't want to be my, there during the actual time of the movie when things go south. But Right, exactly. Yeah. I think that's yeah, a good so choice. Anyways, I I'm pretty demanding of my, you know, daydreams here, but yeah, <laughs> it seems like if I could actually just live in a place and farm and uh have feasts and uh you know, I don't mind getting up in the morning and working, but just sort of general jolliness and happiness, that sounds like a good thing to me. I I think so. I actually I think that Tolkien wrote the Shire as the place where he was like, this is kind of my happy place. I, he, I think he said he was a hobbit at heart. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, me too. Well, that's a great answer. Let's jump into the book of Ezekiel, a little different from the Shire here. Um, when we teach people how to read the Bible, we always try to start with context. It's not just enough to see what's in the passage. We want to see what's around the passage. So could sure. you give us some historical context, maybe about Ezekiel's life, uh, the events of the book, kind of where it fits in the flow of history and the biblical story? Right. Yeah, sure. So Ezekiel is a prophet who prophesies during the last days of Judah. So if you had any recollection of Jeremiah, for those of you who maybe have read Jeremiah, it's really the same basic time period. 
So, you know, big picture in the Old Testament, you know, God makes the world good. Things go bad because of human sin. God calls Abraham and makes promises to him, land progeny blessing. They become a great nation. Uh, the Israelites get the commandments and, and the Torah. They enter the land under Joshua. And they have all these great things they're supposed to do and accomplish. But for the most part, they don't. You know, there's moments of, of obedience and faithfulness, but lots of disobedience. So the uh, after the division of the kingdom, you know, between north and south, the uh, the northern kingdom, despite being warned by Elijah and Hosea and company, they are uh, God destroys them uh, in 722 BC by the Assyrians, and uh, their unfaithfulness led to their destruction. And we're going to see in Ezekiel that's actually uh, an object lesson for Judah. So Judah in the south, with Jerusalem and all their kings descended from David, they survive the Assyrian crisis because they have a good king named Hezekiah who helps them reform. But when they get into the 600s, uh, remember at BC you're kind of going down, they have the long reign of this guy Manasseh who's quite wicked. And uh, the people of Judah learn the wicked ways of idolatry and injustice and bloodshed and thievery so much that they never really recover from it. And they're finally, you know, defeated by the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar and all of that. So Ezekiel is a prophet who prophesies uh, leading up to the destruction of Judah by Babylon and then uh, after it as well. Um, and so, like, uh, it, he has the very difficult task of trying to warn the people that uh, God's, God's people will be deported, God's temple will be destroyed, um, and uh, God's city of Jerusalem will be handed over to Babylon, and they can hardly believe it, but it's coming anyway. And so uh, he has very much the similar difficult task as Jeremiah. So it's about the same time as Jeremiah, which we, we read in the fall. So some people who have Good. been reading along will be familiar with some of that. But my my impression with Jeremiah was that he was uh, kind of a lone voice or one of the few voices who was giving this warning. But if Ezekiel's there, it, was he in a different place or a, a different kind of, you know, uh, you know, set of people he was talking to? Yes, absolutely. So the difference between Ezekiel and Jeremiah— uh, is a little bit timing, but especially location. So given the two, Ezekiel, I guess to backtrack what I said before, Ezekiel had a bit more of a hobbit existence than Jeremiah did because Jeremiah started prophesying, you know, early uh, in, you know, 620s, that kind of thing, letting the people of Judah know that you guys are sinning, and uh, if you don't stop your sinful ways, God will judge you and hand you over to Babylon. So he does that all the way down to 605. He does it all the way down to 597, when Nebuchadnezzar comes in 597 and takes a bunch of people hostage and takes some of the temple vessels, but they still don't repent. And then 10 years later, in about 587, that's when uh, the you know Judas finally destroyed. So where does where does Ezekiel fit into this? Why didn't we hear about Ezekiel when we studied Jeremiah? Well, um, Ezekiel was actually one of the, those people who was taken captive in 597. So um, for those of you who remember in Jeremiah, and, and I'm sorry if you, if you weren't there, then you know you can check it. But Jeremiah 27, 28, uh, there's a dispute between Jeremiah, the true prophet. And this guy, Hananiah, the false prophet. 
And Hananiah, the false prophet, said, all those people taken into exile, they'll come back soon because our sins are not that bad. Jeremiah said, no, actually, our sins are bad. They're going to be out there for a whole whole generation. Um, So Ezekiel was one of those people. So in Jeremiah 29, when Jeremiah writes a letter and says, you know, I know the plans I have for you to prosper you, etc., Ezekiel would have heard that letter read. Um, So Ezekiel begins his prophetic career already out in exile, and he gets his first prophecies in 593, which is before the final fall of Judah in 586. And so between 593 and 586, Ezekiel is getting prophecies of warning to Judah, which he presumably sends back by letter uh, in the same way that Jeremiah wrote letters to the exiles. Presumably Ezekiel wrote letters back to Judah, and they were read out of a scroll, kind of like in Jeremiah 36, uh, these judgment oracles against Judah. And so it's kind of like Ezekiel got up in the morning, you know, kind of in in an exilic community where he had a certain amount of freedom in his own house and a farm. And he would, you know, dash off his uh, judgment oracles, hit send on the email, (laughs) and then farm the rest of the day and did not have to go through all the disasters that Jeremiah went through. So he's getting so that's kind of where Ezekiel was at. So he's getting similar warnings as Jeremiah, but he's not present in Jerusalem getting the flack from that. He's he's already off in exile, which is not great, but that's but it's also not the hostility that Jeremiah better. got. Better. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually easier for him. So in, in in some chapters one through twenty-four of Ezekiel are all judgment oracles for the most part. And they are the prophecies that he sees between his call in five ninety-three and the fall of the city in 586. So that's chapters 1 through 24. After the city falls, he flips over to prophesying kind of comfort and restoration. And that's the rest of the book. The book is very simply organized. So 1 through 24 is judgment from 593 to 586. After the fall in 586, you get 25 to 32, or oracles of judgment against the other foreign powers that had beaten up on Judah. 33 to 39 are other oracles of comfort and consolation. And he he ends with a vision of the temple in 40 to 48, which are all after the destruction and part of his kind of good news. So 1 through 24 is mostly bad news. 25 to the end of the book, 48 is mostly comfort and restoration. That's that's good to keep in mind. That's helpful, especially as you're reading through. To know that some comfort's coming at the end is probably an encouragement in the right. first half. Yeah, when you get to the end of chapter 24, you'll you can breathe a sigh of relief. Yeah, that's good. Well, let's let's talk about the genre of Ezekiel. It's a, it, you've already said it's prophecy, so it's a prophetic book. I think that intimidates a lot of people. You know, it's not like a story and narrative that we can kind of you know follow along. It's a little different. Can you give us some guidelines on how to read the the genre of prophecy? Sure. Uh, I'll say maybe just a couple of things about prophecy. One of them is that um, the prophets come in to prosecute bad behavior. So the people are disobeying and they come in to warn them and tell them to stop disobeying. So all prophetic books start off with judgment. So it's always a good idea to have one, you know, Hershey's kiss with you and uh, reward yourself with a Hershey kiss at the end of every chapter or two chapters, depending on what you can take. Uh, and just to get through the beginning. So they, they always begin in judgment, but they always end in restoration. God's final word is blessing and restoration. So that's part of it is that they come in with a lot of judgment, but it, they're there because of sin. But then you'll see God's final word is blessing, you know, more in the second half of the book. Another thing is that they do a lot of 
forth telling and then also a lot of foretelling. So let me explain yeah, what explain I mean. Explain the difference between those. So forth telling and foretelling. So forth telling we mean is speaking forth God's word to their contemporaries. And then foretelling means predicting things that are going to come in the future. Oftentimes prophets are most famous for, you know, predicting the future. Like that's often popularly how we use the term a prophet is someone who knows the future. So it's important when you dive into a prophetic book to realize that, you know, 80% of what you're going to see or 75% and a lot of it in the first half is not going to be predictions of the long future. They're going to be oftentimes short-term predictions about coming judgment soon. And a lot of it is just uh, condemning the sins and convincing the people that their sins are real, like to their immediate context. So just being aware that, you know, the Babylonians are going to be how God will judge them. They're an invader from the north. Judah has been sinful by sometimes uh, trying to make bargains with Egypt um, instead of trusting God. And that they need to remember the warning about how God used the Assyrians to destroy Israel. And that should remind them that they can be destroyed too. You're going to have to know something about the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, and just kind of be cognizant that they exist. Because a lot of it is not just speaking about the distant future, but it's kind of talking to their contemporaries. And that's part of the prophet's world. Yeah, I think sometimes when when I uh, read the prophets, I, it helps me to think about um, what a parent does when they are warning their child who's being disobedient. When we say, hey, this is going to be the discipline, they are talking about the future, meaning if you keep going in the future, you're going to receive this this discipline. Um, but we don't usually call that predicting the future. We, we usually call it warning. We say something something uh, you know unpleasant is coming if you continue down this path. Um, and so it's talking about the future, but not in the same way that we think, oh, look, a fortune teller who came along and said, Here, here's what, you know, the future holds for you. Right. Yeah. And on a certain level, you know, none of the prophets could be on a certain level said to be predicting what they're doing is they're telling us what God says he's planning to do. So it's not like God is sitting around with a, you know, a tarot cards or something and trying to figure out what's going to happen. God just says, I'm going to judge you very soon. Uh, if you don't repent. And at a certain point, sometimes it's, I'm going to judge you very soon, so please learn the lesson so you can be restored later. And then in the more distant future, God plans to bless and restore you, but that's still him telling you what he plans to do, not sort of just guessing at the future. Yeah, yeah, it's a more um, more promise or relationship. Yeah, maybe the last thing I would say about uh, prophecy, and especially, you know, reading through Ezekiel, is that um, when you read uh, a book like Ezekiel, you will definitely get the sense that like sin is real and God doesn't like it. Um, so it's pretty harsh. Sometimes it can be it'd be very harsh, and the imagery can be harsh and difficult, and and there's a lot of destruction referred to and and uh, very loaded language. But um, one way that I try to help people understand that is that you're dealing with a very complacent people who can't even imagine that they're in the wrong. Uh, maybe you can relate to that. I certainly can. Whether it's myself or somebody that I know, maybe my boss or a coworker or maybe me, where it's like, you know, a lot of things are on the table, but that I'm wrong, that's not on the table. <laughs> so these people need to be kind of shocked into imagining that, wow, we could be wrong 
and God might punish us. We have a temple and we think we're all so holy and mighty. We can't possibly go down. But God has to sort of give them very strong imagery to kind of shock them out of their complacency. And then later on, once the doom has set in, the things seem so bad that it's hard for them to imagine that they could ever be good again. And mm -hmm. so God gives them very elaborate, powerful, positive imagery to kind of reignite their imagination for hope. So there's a way in which a lot of this imagery has to do with imagination on both ends, kind of imagining that, that you could be wrong and that judgment could come, but then later on in the depths of the sadness, imagining that things could be better, and they're both true. Let, let me ask about a particular set of imagery here. I think when I have read Ezekiel, I've been um, surprised by some of the weirdness, but the, the things that really threw me off were the things that were um, violent. And uh, just a little warning, if, if anybody's listening, you've got kids around, uh, this may be a time to kind of pause this and, and, and you know, or skip ahead or something like that. But there's, there's some sexual imagery in there too, some violent uh, sexual imagery in there. I think about um, Ezekiel 16, there's this kind of uh, extended story about God comparing Israel to kind of an abandoned little girl and the girl grows up and he marries her and she becomes a prostitute. And then it, he's angry about that. So he hands her over to her lovers who beat her up. And there, there's like, it's just kind of icky, right? You read that and there's right. other parts that are very, you know, Ezekiel 23, there's some graphic, violent and sexual imagery. And you read that and it's, it, it's, it's hard to take. So what do we do with, with that kind of thing? Yeah, sure. No, that's good. Uh, that's a good follow-up question. Um, so yeah, so one thing I would say that I think is helpful is um, that, and, and I will draw parallels to the Gospels in this, to Jesus, um, is that the imagery that is used comes very much out of the world that the people know. But I wouldn't say that simply because the imagery is used that that means that the biblical writer or that God is approving of us conducting ourselves in that kind of way. So uh, from the New Testament, you could think of, um, remember Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus says that, um, you know, there's a woman who has a case, but the judge doesn't really care about right and wrong and uh, is not interested, but she persists so much that eventually it's not because he cares. He just wants to get rid of her. He goes ahead and addresses her situation. That's how diligent you should be in praying to God. And you're like, really? So God is an unjust judge that doesn't care about me. And the idea is like, no, it's not. It's just the point of it is that you need to be persistent in prayer, but you don't want to kind of absolutize the whole rest of the parable as if that's sort of what God is like. And uh, another one would be, there's one where, uh, I think this is also in Luke, where it says, you know, a slave is working all day and he comes in and his master just sits down and puts his feet up and says, hey, go get me that food. And then the slave goes and gets it. And the master is not going to say thanks because the slave just did what he should do anyway. And so you also should, you know, serve God, you know, without expecting things. And it's like the whole situation of the slavery and the master and how that portrays God um, is very unsettling to us, except for the fact that that's something they all would have been very familiar with. And there is a certain point about the kind of attitude I have in my life and, and towards my responsibilities that, that is spot on, but you wouldn't want to kind of absolutize that. So going back into Ezekiel, I would say it was a, a part of that culture 
that um, you might raise somebody from a young age, uh, a male, and then marry them because for a you know man in his 40s to marry a girl in her teens was also kind of not outside the bounds of the culture. Things that we would think of as crossing boundaries that are not appropriate, and I think rightfully so. Um, but you know, I think the biblical text invokes all of that because it gives a picture of somebody who um, had, within that cultural context, poured out all kinds of favor on somebody, and instead of that, instead of any kind of gratitude or even relationship, just got ill treatment. And so the metaphor is trying to get at that point. Um, and so if you kind of just take the point for what it has to say, it's instructive to us. But the point is made through certain cultural relationships, like with slavery, that in point of fact, um, if you take the teaching of the Bible, you would, and I think Christians did, actually try to get rid of slavery or have better um, sexual ethics for our society. So that's, I don't know if that's helpful, but that's the way I think about it. Yeah. So there's a, there's an underlying big picture point that Ezekiel's trying to make. He uses imagery from the culture, which um, is, he's not necessarily condoning. God's not necessarily saying this is the way it ought to be, but using it because that imagery helps make the point and, and in some ways uh, adds the, the impact of the kind of shock of it. it it's, it's clear even in those days that this would have been a pretty bold and shocking imagery to talk about, you know, this woman who is a prostitute and then, you know, falls into the hands of her lovers and it's not good. And so, so it's, it's, it's not necessarily saying this is the way it ought to be, but the image is used from the culture as a way to get the point across in a shocking enough way. Absolutely. And if, if you read through these texts and like Ezekiel 16 is one of them, you will see at times where it, it's describing this metaphor of the, the, the person who is raised by this person and then married by them. And then, you know, eventually, they, but they, they go off and they pursue these lovers. But they'll say things like that you, you sacrificed your children to foreign gods and you worshiped idols. And it's like, it's clear that we're actually talking about a recalc a disobedient nation in relationship to its God. And, um, and so then when it's finally handed over to the lovers, what it means it's being handed over to foreign powers like Babylon. They're going to be abandoned by Egypt that they were relying on. They're going to be judged by Babylon. So that's kind of the course of the message. But I do think that the, um, it presupposes a certain part of the culture that it doesn't necessarily condone. In this case, I think it doesn't condone. But it is also pretty shocking. The personal human dimension of it is shocking. And it, it's meant to do that. It's meant to shock people into thinking, not that I should go treat another human that way, but we as a nation, wow, we've been incredibly bad. Um, I think that's the, the goal of the, the rhetoric of it. Yeah, that, that helps a lot. Let's, let's talk about some other specific passages as we go through Ezekiel. Uh, again, sure. a, lot of, a lot of this interesting imagery, um, uh, even just from the start of the book, there is this very vivid opening vision in the first few chapters of the book, this vision with these kind of living creatures, and there's wheels and all sorts of stuff, and the glory of God. And um, it's kind of wild. Can you tell us what that's all about, and why would Ezekiel start with this one? <laughs> Right. Yeah, sure. So in Ezekiel 1, you get this picture of the four living creatures that have the four faces and the wings that are <clears throat> extended or covering themselves. And uh, they move wherever the Spirit leads them. 
And then there are these wheels that move along with them that are gleaming and that have eyes. And it, it's quite a remarkable vision. And some of it, uh, it, it gives it sort of metallic in nature. So um, there's sort of uh, two paths you could go on. And I'll tell you the first path, and then the, which is more correct. And I'll tell you the second path, which is more fun. Um, so the first path is that um, in the same way that in in history and in the Bible, if God was going to speak to somebody verbally, he would, of course, speak to them in a language that they know. So when God calls Abraham in Genesis 12, I don't know what Abraham spoke, something like East Semitic. Um, he must have spoken to him in like Arcadian or something like that. You know, whatever he understood, he speaks to Joseph in he Hebrew or else Egyptian um, if he appears to Cornelius, if he speaks Greek or Latin, he speaks that, you know, et cetera. We, that's pretty obvious. God speaks in verbal languages that the person knows. In the same way, God communicates in visual language that people know. So uh, if for parallel, you can look back at Isaiah chapter 6, and you oh, will yeah. see that Isaiah sees a vision of the great glory of God God is sitting on a throne with the train of his robe, and there are these seraphim flying around, fiery beings with an altar. And it's a very majestic, powerful picture that makes sense for the kind of royal courtly experience of, you know, Israelites and Judeans. So the goal is to show God as glorified, as powerful, as majestic, and as spectacular. Okay. When you go out into the east, like Mesopotamia, Babylon, you know, Persia, etc., cetera, uh, if you look at the, the art that's there, you will see creatures made up of different body parts. You will see, you know, like pictures of Ashur or, or whatever, you know, wreathed in a circle, you know, with different feathers coming out and with different body parts and with a bow that has a circle around it, you know like a Lord of the Rings kind of thing. Um, and so it's not a surprise that when you look at like Daniel, the book of Daniel has monsters coming out of the sea the, with the, the foot of a this and the hand of a that. And uh, he sees incredible vision in chapter seven of that. And then in chapters 10 and 11, the gleaming metallic uh, angel that appears to him because he's in the east. Um, and that's what majestic power looks like. So I would say that uh, if you were out in Babylon and you had seen their huge glowing metallic idols and the huge temples that they had and all of the multiple moving parts, obviously they're not going to see a vision of multiple deities because that's polytheism. But you are going to see this heavenly host of angelic beings with different parts of their bodies and uh, glowing wheels and eyes and rotating stuff that uh, portrayed the the grandeur of God in that visual context. So I think that's probably the best way to understand it. So uh, before you get on to the the second way that you said maybe it was more fun, yes, let me right, let me yeah. make sure I understand this. So it's it's saying, all right, God wants to communicate uh, something about Himself, and so um, He wants to say, I, I I'm glorious, I have grandeur, and so on. And he uses the imagery that they would have been familiar with in the culture and appropriates it in a new way to say something about himself that's true using things they'd be familiar with. So instead of saying, I'm, I'm one God among many gods, 
it's almost like he took images of their gods and, and spiritual beings and said, they'd be serving me or they'd be subservient to me. They'd be surrounding me, giving me glory kind of thing. Is that what you're Absolutely. describing? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yes, that's great. That's fantastic. And uh, that's a, a good way to say it. And I, you know, you can think of it this way, that if you'd grown up in, in Jerusalem, the picture of God's glory in Isaiah 6 would be spectacular and, and, and you know, mind-blowing in terms of how great and glorious God is. If you'd been out to Babylon and seen all the stuff that they had, and then you saw a picture of God's glory as in Isaiah 6, you might think to yourself, that's not a big deal. Um, whereas, so, you know, the, the ante has been upped in terms of what spectacular looks like and what we expect to be included in that picture. And so God wanting to communicate the right thing to people communicates that with his own central splendor and supremacy over any other spiritual beings, you know, made as clear as possible. And in, in that passage, these, these beings are, I think are kind of carrying or surrounding God's throne. Is that the, the image there? Yes, right. And so that's what's similar about Isaiah 6, is you, you have a throne scene, um, but the uh, the throne scene just has more moving parts with things moving around and glittering and, and more references to metal, because I think that's suitable to the context. But if you actually look at the very end of the, um, you know, the vision itself, um, you will see um, chapter 1, verse... Uh, Sorry, my glasses here. Verse 28. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. They don't, even, they don't even want to say that it was the glory of the Lord. It's a likeness of the glory of the Lord because God is beyond our recognition. Um, so you don't see the Lord. You don't even see the glory of the Lord. You see a likeness of the glory of the Lord. And it was mind blowing. Um, and so I think the vision kind of tells you at the end what it is that it's trying to communicate. And uh, it says, when I saw it, I fell face down, which is would be the appropriate response. Yeah, that um, sounds about so, right. Anyway. So uh, why, why would Ezekiel need to see a vision uh, of this? So he's, he's in Babylon, and he's seen this vision of the glory of the Lord. Why is that fitting for his circumstance or what God needs to communicate to him or the people? Well, you know, it, part of it would be Ezekiel himself as the audience. You know, God will go on later in chapter uh, two and in three in his call, then later on uh, as well in um, later chapters, 33, I think, is that um, that Ezekiel is God's watchman. And so it, it, God's going to say to him, <clears throat> you know, if uh, you the people are sinning and they're kind of uh, geared up for judgment. And so if you warn them and they don't repent, their sin is on them. But if you fail to warn them and then they get judged, I will also hold you accountable for their judgment. And so part of it, I think, is to wow Ezekiel, to kind of let him know that this is serious business um, and to make sure that he fulfills his prophetic duty, you know, conscientiously. I also think part of it is to pass along to his audience, uh, again, in order to try to inspire them to think that that Yahweh, the Lord, is glorious because they obviously are very impressed by Babylon's army. They're very impressed by Egypt's army. And it's easy for us to obey whatever it is that we think is most glorious or that we fear the most. And so sometimes if, if uh, God doesn't seem so spectacular, 
but this professional sport thing does or that my promotion at work does or the big office at the office seems spectacular, then I go for that. So I think also this is meant to communicate to the audience that, look, God is actually more spectacular than these other things that are in your field of vision. So you should trust and obey God, not these other things. That, that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, what was the second way? You, you said oh, there's yeah. a, so a the more fun way to... <laughs> is that for, for those of you who have ever heard of this, you could look it up, uh, but there's a, there was a TV show called Ancient Aliens. <laughs> and so, um, you know, they explain everything under the sun. Like Stonehenge was actually a landing platform for, you know, flying saucers. And the pyramids in Giza were, were also connected. There were power stations for refueling, you know, UFOs. Um, but actually, uh, one of the early works on this was uh, a, a book in the 1970s, I think, that was called Ezekiel's Spaceships. Oh, my um, gosh. <laughs> and they described the wheels and the flying creatures and the metallic stuff as that Ezekiel had actually seen extraterrestrial kind of navigators who flew in to Earth uh, from outer space. And uh, so actually, Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel is one of the... Um, forerunners of the Ancient Aliens series. Oh my gosh. Um, that's one way you could go. The other thing is that actually in 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 the tradition, in Jewish tradition, um, meditating on Ezekiel's vision was uh, seen as one entryway into mysticism. So hmm. if you kind of wanted to transcend a rational thought and try to connect with God's glory in an experiential way, you should simply meditate on the beginning of Ezekiel. Wow. And it, it then came to be seen as like, it's actually not safe to do if you're not really spiritually mature. That that you know? was their so warning like, was don't, don't yeah. do this unless you're ready for it. Yeah. Yeah. So in other words, you, you could actually kind of boggle your mind too much if you spend too much time thinking about the first chapters of Ezekiel. Um, but when you're, when you're ready for it, it's actually a, a wonderful way to kind of meditate on God's glory and, connect with God in a mystical kind of way. So, so that, that's yeah, there's the, the mystical approach, and then there's the ancient alien approach. Yeah, okay. So may, maybe not ancient aliens, but that's funny. Oh, sure. my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Um, okay, let's talk about another passage that is um, among the passages in Ezekiel, maybe more well-known. It's uh, later in the book, there is this vision that he has of this valley filled with dry bones. Uh, it's a, a very striking image, but what, what, is, what does that mean? Why is that um, appropriate for Ezekiel's message? Yeah, so Ezekiel uh, sees a valley of bones that are dry, um, and God says to him, can these bones live? And Ezekiel gives always the right answer to these questions, which is, you, God, know. You know, like, I'm not going to say no. I'm not going to say yes, because I can't do it, but I'm not going to say no, because maybe you can or do it or planning to do it. You can also ask the question, what difference does it make that they're dry, you know? What, what, do, what dry bones? Why dry bones? And I think the idea is that they're like thoroughly dead bones, you know? So this would be the difference between like really dry bones versus bones that have a little bit of yucky tendony stuff on it to, uh, you know, a rare steak, you know, which is kind of half alive and, and half uh, dead. So these are dry bones. So they're thoroughly dead. And then God says, can these things live? Ezekiel says, you know, you know. And then God uh, blows on them, puts his spirit, his wind, his breath on them. They come back to life. 
and they become an image of the reconstituted people of God, you know, like the whole house of Israel and Judah. And so it's it's near the end of the book. It's in that second part, you know, like the 33 to 39 before the temple, but just kind of various images of restoration. And it's a, it's a vivid, um, great way, imaginative way of encouraging them that uh, the, the nation can be restored um, after the exile. I think what makes it theologically important is that uh, you may know from the New Testament that the the wages of sin is death. And so the exile is not just a flesh wound. You know, the <laughs> exile is not just a, a small thing that happened. The people sinned, and in a sense, uh, as a nation, they died. And that should be the end of them. But by God's supernatural ability, he can bring them back to life. And so when God rest- restores them to their land in, in the book of Ezra, um, this is like national resurrection. It's the death and resurrection of Israel as a people. Um, and so you can see the theology of sin leads to death, but it's overcome by God's supernatural power over life and death to bring about resurrection. That experience that Israel as a people has is then the same experience that individual people have, and that's explained you know, in the book of Romans and elsewhere in the New Testament. Well, and the, there's also the connection there that of the the spirit is kind of a theme there in that section about the dry bones, uh, which yes. would also r- relate to when uh, you know dead hearts come to life. When 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 sp- people are spiritually revived, it's by the power of the spirit. So there's a connection there too. Yes, absolutely. And so you get you get this in Ezekiel um, in several chapters that talk about the um, uh, I will take out your heart of flesh. You know, and I will give you a heart of uh, spirit, you know, like I, I'll put a, a take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. So the people had had kind of a, a dead heart. Um, but God said so this is in Ezekiel 16. Um, but like I'm going to take out the heart of stone that you have. And I'm going to put in a heart of flesh. And the, the spirit is also talked about in those passages as well. So I think it kind of like with Jeremiah 31, you know, like the writing the Torah on your heart. The, the general, you know, prognosis of Judah at this time was that they just had an unresponsive heart. Uh, it was a, a, a dead heart, a stone heart, and they needed God's spirit to put in a living heart that would respond to God when God calls to them. Yeah, so, so much of the problem ends up being internal. It's how, how responsive are you when God speaks? It's, you know, there, there's all those external things going on, Babylon, so on, but at the, the heart of it, pun intended, I suppose, is yeah. whether or not your heart is responsive. Yeah, yeah, and I'm looking in here. So you can take a look at that if, if you're listening. Actually, it's um, Ezekiel 11. So Ezekiel 11, um, which talks about this, and then also... Um, let me see here if that's what I'm after. Um, renewal of the heart, Ezekiel 36, 26 and following. So if you look at Ezekiel 36, 26, you'll see a passage about renewal of the heart and the spirit and taking out the heart of stone and putting in the heart of flesh. Yeah. Let, let's talk about a few of the more challenging passages where people are going to probably come to this in the reading and say, I'm not sure what to make of this. One, yeah. one type of uh, passage here are some of these longer stretches where Ezekiel is uh, condemning other nations uh, around Israel and, and, and Judah, uh, Tyre, Egypt, so on. 
And this is a little tricky for us because we're used to reading about Israel or Judah. These are people we're familiar with. We're, we're bought into the story of, of the, these people. But, you know, when you're talking about Tyre or Egypt, uh, it, it feels a little more random to us. So what, what do we do with prophecies about these nations, some of whom don't even exist on the map anymore in our day? Um, what, what do we make of that? Right. Yeah, yeah. So um, <clears throat> there's uh, a first answer about just sort of how does it fit into the book at the most basic level. And so the oracles against foreign nations in 25 to 32 are at the very beginning of the turn towards comfort and consolation. Um, so 1 through 24 is judgment against Judah. And then when he turns to comfort Judah, the first thing he does is he starts uh, issuing oracles that that are condemning of local powers and in a couple cases major superpowers that had afflicted, taken vengeance on Judah or uh, taken advantage of their downfall and raided and attacked them, you know, like the Edomites. Um, so there is a sense in which, you know, like uh, it's meant to be kind of a consolation that God will bring judgment upon these other um, peoples who attack them. It's kind of like the book of Nahum. Nahum means comfort. And the entire book of Nahum is a judgment against the Assyrians, against Nineveh, uh, because of the horrific things that Nineveh had done. So I'd say that's a first answer about how does it fit into the book. Practically, though, in terms of how do I relate to it, the question could be asked, okay, so does that mean that I should kind of be thinking about all the people that I feel like have done me wrong and then be praying that God will punish and destroy them, and then that comforts me. Yeah, um, that, is, yeah that that, is, that, is that how it goes? Is that how it goes? Should I respond to the text that way? So I, I would say not. Um, I would say it's always God's business to bring judgment and, and not my business to bring judgment. Um, if, if I feel that I'm being afflicted, you can always, like the psalmist, hand your case over to God and say, I'm being afflicted, I'm being hurt, please God, act on my behalf. You know, you, but it's always God's place to act, not my place. Our place, of course, is to um, uh, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, so that's kind of the advice that I would give. In terms of like, what do you learn from these texts, though? I would say that um, uh, they are often judged for paradigm kind of sins, which would be um, hurting people when they're down or pride. You know, so like uh, a lot of the local nations, Ammon or Edom, they took advantage of Judah when they were down. When the Babylonians knocked down their wall, they came in and raided them. So you shouldn't take advantage of people when they're down. Um, or also, you know, Egypt, the pride. Pride is another big one. You you think that you yourself created the Nile, you know. So pride, um, a desire to take advantage of people. You'll see that those sins are condemned, and I think we can always ask ourselves, you know, am I doing these sins? And I, if there's one one text that you should especially be looking for, it's in chapter 28. Uh, there's an oracle against the prince of Tyre. Uh, Tyre and Sidon are these nations, uh, these cities uh, on the coast of the Mediterranean to the north of Israel, kind of in modern-day Syria. And uh, there's the prince of Tyre. Uh, is condemned in an oracle that so um, images, uh, describes his pride and his evil with such dramatic imagery. 
it kind of talks about him being in the Garden of Eden and falling out of it, of uh, lifting his heart up against God, that in the Middle Ages, this passage was actually taken by medieval readers as a backstory for Satan. So, you know, if, if anybody's familiar with like, you know, how did Satan come about? Like, what's Satan's backstory? You know, the movies nowadays, they make a backstory for all the bad guys, you know, so that they have a backstory and we feel sorry for them. That's a topic for another day. <laughs> um, but uh, Satan's backstory. And then you read the Bible and you're like, actually, there's really there is no backstory to Satan in the Bible. That's as elaborate as there is in the Middle Ages. So where'd all this come from? Well, a lot of it are some oracles in prophetic books, and this oracle against Tyre is one of the key ones. So if you were to ask me, do I actually think that's the backstory for Satan? I would say no. I think that's an overread. However, that reading didn't come out of nowhere um, because the oracle against the Prince of Tyre talks about his pride, his arrogance, his evil, um, his raising himself up against God with such overblown and biblically fraught and rich imagery that, in a sense, it kind of typologizes him as a symbol of evil. So no wonder that medieval readers saw Satan there as a kind of symbol of evil. So I think that's especially a good one to read, but not necessarily that I know that that's the backstory of Satan— but rather to be like, okay, there's a really vivid picture of evil. And then I can be asking myself the question, you know, um, am I like that in any way? Um, and I think that, that you can use those actually to challenge ourselves. And that, that, that a lot of the imagery, all I mean to say is that it goes beyond the specifics of, you know, ancient, you know, Tyre or ancient Ammon. It very much connects to broad sins that I think we can relate to. Yeah, that's really helpful. That's really helpful. There's one oracle against a, a, a group of people or a figure that is a little different from the other ones, um, because, you know, you read about Moab, Edom, Philistines. These are um, people that, you know, they may not uh, still exist in our world, but they existed at some point in history. And then there's this one about some guy named Gog, who right. is from the land of Magog. And the, it sounds like the names are from an amateur fantasy author, you know, and, and as right. far as I know, maybe, maybe I, I'm just not informed, but I, I don't know that there actually was a ruler named Gog in a land called Magog. Uh, so it, it's hard to know what to make of that. Cause I can't find that on a map. Like I can Tyre or Egypt or something like that. What's the deal with the, this Gog thing? Okay. Yeah. So that, that is a, a great uh, question. And um, yeah, it does sound like you could go to your local bookstore and go to the graphic novel section yeah. <laughs> and find one called The Wars of Gog uh, and, and Magog, etc. So um, the name Magog, if we understand it correctly, together with like Meshach and Tubal, some other names that are mentioned in Ezekiel, um, in, in a, that same section of uh, Ezekiel, um, is... Uh, uh, they're mentioned in Genesis, actually, Genesis chapter 10 in the Table of Nations, first couple of verses, talk about um, uh, the, uh, the tents of Japheth, and the, the, and the people from Japheth are Yavin, which is Greece, but also Tubal and Magog and Meshach, etc. So I think the names have been taken out of what for Ezekiel would have been the names of ancient peoples kind of far off. And um, the, the name Gog, you're right, is one that we're not quite sure 
who this may have been or will be or ever was, it, it may be derived from the name Magog. Like, okay, let's have a king of Magog and let's call him Gog. You know, that, that kind of makes sense. And so it's Gog from the land of Magog, but also Meshach and Tubal are mentioned too. And uh, it's, an, it's a horrific, uh, dangerous invader from the north. And so uh, invaders from the north are part of lots of um, kind of broad thinking in many cultures about sort of dangers to come or dangers on the horizon. And um, the way it fits into the text is that, you know, you had had oracles against foreign nations in 25 to 32, which are nations that, that Judah knew about that had done bad things and that will get punished by God. Then you have um, all these oracles, you know, in 33, you know, up to 39, 37, I guess, really, that are all positive about restoration and blessing. And then we're going to end with this dramatic picture of the temple, which is going to be, you know, great restoration and blessing. So without the oracle about Gog of Magog, um, what you basically have is God will punish the bad guys. He'll restore and bless you. And then there's going to be eternal, everlasting perfection in the temple. That's actually not going to be the experience of God's people. Um, even in the future, there is going to be conflict and there'll be oppression from foreign nations and there'll be evil and there'll be resistance against God. There'll be resistance against them. So I take it that this is depicted in, in a kind of imagistic way by this almost kind of quasi mythical character of Gog of Magog, who kind of near the end and before everything is set right uh, attacks God's people, uh, is an affront to, to God himself. And then finally, the bringing down of this Gog of Magog is then finally what ushers in, um, you know, the everything being good with this vision of the temple. And that is the reason why I think you'll see that in Revelation 20, uh, Revelation is talking about, for a lot of Revelation, it's like, you know, um, God's people will be persecuted. The city on seven hills is Rome. There was persecution against Christians, you know, in the Roman Empire. Um, but then that's going to be brought to an end. And then Jesus returns in Revelation 19, and you set up this millennium. And then it's going to end with, like, the, the city of Jerusalem coming down in the Garden of Eden. But but the reality is, is that God will bring down the Roman Empire. He's going to vindicate God's people and the church will spread and the gospel will spread. But it's actually not going to go straight from that into eternal glory. There's going to be hostile forces that will be opposing God and his people all the way up to the end. And until those hostile forces are brought down, finally, you're not going to have your, your eternal blessing and new heavens and new earth. So that's the reason why the imagery of Gog and Magog is revisited in Revelation 20 from Ezekiel to be these last evil forces that raise themselves up against God and are brought down. And then you inaugurate the city of Jerusalem coming down and the restored Garden of Eden. So I would say that they, it is kind of imagery. It's, it's kind of mythological imagery, but it does actually plug into reality. It plugs into the reality of um, all forces that have, um, since the time of, of uh, the re restoration of Judah, since the time of the persecution of the early church, 
and even today in parts of the world where Christians are persecuted systematically, um, all of those forces, I think, are kind of represented in this Gog of Magog or Gog and Magog in Revelation. And uh, uh, when that is finally done, that's when you're going to get the new heavens and the new earth or the perfected temple or whatever the image is for everything being right at the end. So let, let me see if I understand this again. There, there's there's all sorts of things here where I think, oh, man, I got to get my head around this. So let me make sure I get this. Sure. Uh, this in some ways, it's a it's an, uh, a name that's drawn from kind of these you know deep uh, you know uh, distant past stories, but it's used as a way to represent uh, forces that oppose God's people between now and when things are fixed, but also uh, perhaps a kind of final opposition, you know, the last stand kind of thing. So it's both the opposition that's faced along the way. But also whatever you know, final uh, you know, uh, act of evil opposing God's plans before He uh, brings all things you know right again. Sure. Yeah. So I, I am not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. <laughs> and so you know, um, I, I'm definitely able to kind of see the role of the Gog of Magog as you know opposition that comes after the immediate thing your biblical text is talking about, but before you know, the final resolution of everything perfectly at the end of time, we've seen that. We've kind of recognized yeah. that. Many, many Christian interpreters have also seen that that opposition to God and God's people will culminate right before the final consummation of all things, like the, you know, you know final eternal glory, um, in some kind of opposing force that embodies all of the opposition to God, in which case, if that happens, that would be the most concrete expression of Gog of Magog. So if that happens, then then that's the case. Yeah. Um, but but that's that's now outside the realm of my purview and not being a prophet. <laughs> I can speculate, but but I can't yeah. know for sure. But for but for sure, it represents uh, opposition along the way to God's people. Right. Yeah. And you can see that it's it's kind of drawn from the distant past and drawn in more kind of abstract colors precisely because it's something that's kind of seen as future. You know, so it's not included with the oracles against the nations in 25 to 32. That's historical nations that did historical bad things and will suffer historical punishments that are part of God's providence of judgment against them. This Gog and Magog thing is kind of put near the end in the future um, because it's still to come for them, um, but in, in it, it, but it, it's not the final word. The final word is always the blessing and the restoration and the perfection. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about that that restoration um, because I think, in the general sense, I think people probably get the feeling: hey, good things are coming, restorations happening. You get to the end of Ezekiel, you definitely get that feeling. But the way it's conveyed is difficult because it's about eight chapters describing this giant temple with incredible detail. And and to be honest, it feels a little tedious as you're going through kind of the details. If you step back, it's like, okay, I get this. It's describing a temple, but it's a it's a long stretch there. Um, what are we to make of this whole vision of the temple? Okay, good. Yeah. So when you get to the end of the book, you get to chapter 40, you'll see that there's, as Clayton said, eight chapters that are devoted to a description of the temple, its dimensions, elements of the sacrificial system. And then at the very end, also distribution of land. Um, and so it's kind of restored temple and its precincts. And so why, why does the book end in this way? <clears throat> so 
uh, again, I'm not a prophet of the son of the prophet, so I, I'll kind of tell you what, what I'm aware of and uh, what some of the options are. So one thing about Ezekiel is that Ezekiel has a vision in chapter 10 of the glory of God departing from the temple. And part of the reason why I think that that vision was necessary is because in Ezekiel's day, you know, in between 593 and 586, you know, when the people are bad, he's condemning sin. A lot of the leaders were presumptuous and they thought, you know, God's glory is in the temple in Jerusalem. So Yahweh would never allow the Babylonians to come in and destroy our city and dismantle the temple because God's glory is there. So as long as God's glory is there, we're safe. Yahweh will always protect us and we can do all the evil we want. Well, that's not how God tends to operate in the Old Testament. Uh, and I would say in general. So uh, much probably to their chagrin, Ezekiel says, I saw a vision of like God's glory departing from the temple. Like, hey, I'm leaving, guys. And so when Nebuchadnezzar and his army show up, you're kind of on your own. Um, and so that's kind of where things were left. And it's part of that withdrawal of God's presence that leads to destruction and judgment and alienation and the death of the people, like in the Valley of Dry Bones. So part of the picture of restoration of God's people has to include a restored temple, that the glory of God comes back to the temple. Um, and so this temple has uh, ideal kind of, um, everything's kind of a cube. Uh, it's The dimensions are huge and, and very kind of um, ideal. I guess you could say abstractly ideal, um, but they're very ideal. Uh, it talks about God living with Israel forever in this temple, and there's no more defiling of any kind in chapter 43. Um, there's all sorts of things presented that are ideal, like uh, in chapter 44, uh, no foreigner who has an uncircumcised heart will ever enter the temple. So it'll be never be defiled by foreigner invaders, again, like Nebuchadnezzar. Now, it says no foreigner will ever enter the, the temple with an uncircumcised heart. Now, I guess you could ask the question, well, what about if a foreigner had circumcised their heart towards God? And I would say on that, see Isaiah, Isaiah 55, yeah. 56. You know, you, you will have foreigners who love the Lord who will enter. Um, but nothing unclean, nothing not devoted to God will ever enter in. Um, but, you know, on the foreigner side, it actually in chapter 47 there is land in the division of the land near the end. There is land set aside for sojourners, you know, landless non-Israelites living in the land who have children. There's land set aside to them so that they do have land. So it's not um, anti, you know, outsiders. It just wants everything. Everything there is devoted to God. Everything there is perfectly devoted to God. So um, I'll just give a couple of options about what people think about this. Some have thought that this is a symbolic representation of the second temple that was built um, by Ezra in the time of Ezra Nehemiah, you know, um, and then augmented by Herod. And it was the temple that Jesus would have worshipped at, uh, or Paul would have worshipped at in the book of Acts, that uh, God said he would restore them a temple. He did restore them a temple. If you look at the book of Haggai, you know, uh, God says, you know, my spirit is with you, build the temple, I will be with you, etc. And um, that may be the whole story, uh, or at least part of the story. 
of course, the dimensions in Ezekiel's temple do not match the dimensions of, you know, the temple built in Ezra and Nehemiah or of Herod's temple. And it certainly did never had the perfect holiness and completeness that those temples had. So maybe that that second temple is kind of a preview, you know, of of what Ezekiel 40 to 48 is about. Uh, the other two options, and and you could mix and match them in various ways. Some people have said that there will actually be a third temple built near the end of time. Um, that Jesus maybe even will return to the earth and uh, establish a homeland in in the land of Israel and then rebuild a temple. And uh, some people, both Christians and Jews who have believed that, have even made preparations. They've gone and built all the things or parts, you know, that uh, would go into Ezekiel's temple so that when Jesus comes back, they're ready to to move into action to rebuild the temple. So I don't know that that's a majority position in today's kind of evangelical community, but it's been part of the tradition of evangelical thinking about this passage. And, um, you know, the, the positive is that... Um, you know, it, it it comes out of a heart of taking the biblical text very seriously and saying, look, Ezekiel says that temple will be built with these dimensions. It hasn't been done yet, so it, it will be done. Um, one of the questions that have always been asked is that clearly in Ezekiel's temple, animal sacrifices, sin offerings and guilt offerings are being offered. And so one of the questions is, is that, well, after the death and resurrection of Jesus and the teaching in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, why would you still have animal sacrifices in the future if you're taking all this literally? So those are some of the issues that you'd work out if you go that that third temple route. Um, there's also a third option, which I can get into, but I can pause there if you want to ask any questions about the first two options. No, I think uh, I, I think those are uh, both helpful. It'll, it, I, I, I think we'll be interested to hear the third one, but let me just recap them. So the first one is... It's kind of an over-the-top description of the temple that was built, um, you know, during Ezra's time that Jesus would have, you know, seen that was destroyed in 70 AD. It, even though the dimensions don't match, people would take it as kind of a, a grandiose way of describing what may have felt small to them, but spiritually was significant, you know, uh, for the people was significant. Or right. it's uh, a temple yet to come that would happen, you know, somewhere at the return of Jesus. But there's some problems with... How do you take some of the things that Ezekiel describes that don't seem like they should come back, like animal sacrifices, if if it's there? And there's there's a number of things about that that you know it, the specifics would get complicated for that. So right. it, either w- the a literal temple, you know, back in you know Ezra and Jesus's day, or a literal temple at the end of time. What's the third option? Right. So the third option would be that, um, and this is one you would know, I'm sure, from gone uh, if you went through Wheaton College's. Uh, you know, MA program when Dr. Beale was here, Yeah, you know, so the kind of uh, temple uh, theology, uh, other New Testament theology people have talked about this too, but, you know, the the presence of God is an important theme throughout the Old, Old Testament. So God is present with people in the garden, walking to and fro. He wants to dwell with them uh, in the tabernacle, you know, so he builds a tabernacle and wants to dwell with them, but there are all these things that have to happen to make that work. The temple then kind of continues that presence of God motif. So the temple is where God comes to meet with the people and be present with them. And so when Solomon prays his prayer of dedication in 1 Kings 8 for the temple, he says, God, you know, please make your glory be here, cause your name to dwell here. 
so that when we repent, we can come here and be in your presence. When we want justice, we can come here, you know, and uh, seek justice from you. So it's all about God's presence. So if you think about the temple as all about God's presence, when you come into the New Testament, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, what is the new epicenter of God's presence on earth? And it's Jesus. And you actually get this said explicitly in the Gospel of John. I think it's in chapter 2. You know, when uh, Jesus says, you know, uh, he's reported as saying, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. And the the Gospel writer says they didn't realize he was talking about his body, that his body is the temple because Jesus is now the epicenter of God's presence on earth. So that when um, then when Jesus, of course, you know, in his upper room discourse in John says, when I go to the father, I will not leave you alone, but I will send the spirit. And so when Jesus has ascended uh, in you know, the book of Acts and has sent the spirit in Acts chapter two, from that point on, you can have references to the church as, you know, like in first and second Corinthians, like you individual Christian are the temple of God. Or you Christians as a group are the temple of God. Or in First Peter, God is building you up into a spiritual temple and all that kind of thing. First Peter chapter one, end of chapter one, beginning of chapter two. And so then you have this idea that the, the temple theology continues in the presence of Jesus, the presence of the Spirit in the church. And by the time you get to Revelation 21, you know, the city of Jerusalem that comes down, uh, Revelation 21, it says that there is no temple because God and the Lamb are the temple. Um, and so that may right there be kind of a, a, a cue, a clue to let us know how to read all this. And so it, one way of looking at it is that Ezekiel's temple is an idealized temple, the dimensions of which are kind of odd because it's really not meant to be built, but it's meant to kind of mathematically and schematically represent perfection in various ways that shows you that God will eventually dwell with the people again in this perfected way. And that that is actually fulfilled in Jesus, in the spirit, in the church, and then with God's presence with people in eternal life again in Revelation 21, 22, in which case it does have that kind of fulfillment um, that's both spiritual, but also quite tangible in the new heavens and the new earth, but never manifests itself literally in a temple with those dimensions. That's yeah. kind of option number three. Yeah. And there, there are even some things in in Ezekiel where there's a—isn't there a river coming out of the temple in there? Which comes yes. back again in, in Revelation where we've got this river of life happening there, too. Right, yeah. There's a river coming out. And in, in Revelation, of course, there's a tree of life on either side of the river. And it's like it's one tree, but it's on either side. And again, what, when, you, if you read, when you read through Ezekiel 40 through 48 uh you know especially if you were like an architect and you start thinking about okay how would i build this it's sort of like the amazing vision in ezekiel 1 i, I actually i have all my old testament gen ed students try to draw the vision in ezekiel 1 yeah <laughs> and uh, some of the artists are great and they do a great job trying and some of them are terrible like mine is terrible i show them mine too and it's awful and i have to resort to labeling or you'd have no idea what anything was <laughs> Um, but you kind of realize like, all right, some of this imagery is almost a little beyond grasping. Um, and it, that may, again, be kind of a sense about you know, the river, the tree, the temple, that, that this is meant to evoke in us 
what this thing is all about, which is God's direct presence dwelling with his people. And, uh, and it may not be that there's going to be a literal temple. So again, I'm also, I'm not a prophet. And so if at some point in the future, Jesus returns and builds this temple, then all the people who are expecting that will be vindicated. And I don't want to be on record having dogmatically said that they were wrong. <laughs> that's, that's maybe um, a decent bet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So all that to be said is that, like I said, you might be able to combine several of these things. So some people might say, well, I expect, I think that the second temple that was built in Ezra and Nehemiah was a kind of type of this or prefigure of it, but that the ultimate temple really will be built literally by Jesus when he comes back, but that all of that prefigures all this temple imagery that you just described in option number three. So all that to be said is I'm not sure that I, I people need to feel forced to uh, to choose between them, but I think it's it's good to be aware of these different approaches people have taken. Yeah, oh, wow, this is really fascinating. I've got one final question. Yeah, um, sure. When we are teaching people to read the Bible, uh, we always want to make sure that we are uh, cultivating people who are doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. And with a book like Ezekiel, there's so much to figure out and try to understand and, and so on. But we want to make sure people are responding personally in tangible ways, taking action in response to it. Uh, we want to we want to be applying the Bible to our lives. So uh, especially with Ezekiel, that feels maybe a little more distant than something, you know, like Paul's letters where there's something that just says, go do this and you can figure out a way to do that in your life. Um, right. What are some tips for finding ways to apply the message of Ezekiel to our lives? Yeah, no, that's good. Um, maybe just two or three things I'll mention, I can say briefly. One of them is um, there are lots of sins condemned in the book. Um, they're described early on as being, you know, hard-hearted and rebellious, uh, bloodshed and injustice, false prophets, um, idolatry, which, you know, Paul in a couple places, like in Ephesians and Colossians, I think, refers to as um, covetousness, you know, so like the idea of uh, anything that I put in front of God is like an idol. Um, there's a great list of sins in um, Ezekiel uh, 22, Ezekiel 22, of all the various things they're doing wrong. But what, one thing I would say is just read through all these sins that are being condemned. Think about the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, you know, don't just avoid killing people, but don't hate people, that kind of thing. Don't just avoid adultery, but avoid lust. And, uh, and as you read through that, ask yourself, you know, the hard questions of, uh, am, am I in any way acting out the things that Ezekiel is condemning? I think that's always a good way to respond to a prophetic book. Um, I also think you could say that um, you consider God's glory. Think of all the amazing depictions of God's glory and how God is at the, uh, the center of things. Um, you know, that's very true of Ezekiel. Um, God's sovereignty and glory are are more prominent in Ezekiel maybe than in any any other prophetic book. In fact, in in chapter thirty six, you in, near the end of the chapter, you'll get these statements where God even says, um, "So that they so that they will know that I am Yahweh." That occurs fifty or sixty times in the book at least. Uh, everything is done so that they will know that I am Yahweh, and and God even says, "I'm restoring you, O Judah." not for your sake, but for the sake of my name and my glory, so that everyone will know that I'm Yahweh. And it's kind of like, I'm not actually restoring you for your sake. I'm restoring you because I want to be known by everyone. Don't think you're so special. 
And so another thing I think you could read through is now, again, uh, God does love people and restores them out of (laughs) compassion. You can find other passages that say that, so I don't want to eliminate that. But as you're reading through Ezekiel, you can ask yourself the question, in what ways is God at the center of everything? And is God at the center of everything for me? Or am I at the center of everything? My job, my work, my family, whatever, my, my financial planning, is God at the center of that? Or am I at the center of that? And you'll find that Ezekiel's always pushing you to put God at the center of everything. And um, maybe the last thing I'll just say is, um, you take a look at Mark 7, uh, where Jesus talks about, it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean, it's what comes out of your heart that makes you unclean, covetousness and greed and envy and slander and all that. And you know Ezekiel's a priest. So part of what makes Ezekiel hard is he's, he's, he's into the sins other prophets are into condemning. But he loves talking about the temple and ritual uncleanness and declaring things clean that are not clean. And you guys are being bad about that. And, and that can be the hardest thing to relate to. But look at Mark 7 and think about like clean and unclean, not just in a ritual sense, but in that kind of ethical, moral, faithfulness to God sense. And see how every time you're reading in Ezekiel and you're reading something that feels priestly, you know, on a certain level, Jesus is our high priest. So a priesthood of all believers isn't quite right because Jesus is the high priest. But think of yourself as a mini priest, as like a little Ezekiel who is trying to live in a world and contribute to a world that's clean and not unclean. But what clean means is that um, you were faithful to God. You were faithful to Christ. You thought about what Christ wanted you to do in this situation. And if, if the priests are living constantly in this sort of uptight world of ritual purity, maybe I could learn something about living in constantly in an uptight world of Jesus purity. Um, when I'm in the car, you know, and somebody cuts me off, um, I, I'm not in a safe zone where I can just curse them out and wish them dead because I'm, I'm not at church, I'm not at work, I'm not at home, so I'm, I'm not in a God zone. The priests are always worried about ritual impurity, and maybe that can also remind me to think about that too. Oh, this is really this is really good, very helpful. Uh, Dr. Graves, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Um, we probably could dig into so much more, but this has been really enlightening. It's gotten me excited to dig into Ezekiel for myself again uh, this time around, so thank you for doing this. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me, and I hope everybody enjoys reading Ezekiel. Yeah, for those of you who are listening, I hope this has been helpful for you. As we read through Ezekiel together, I want to tell you about two additional things we're going to be doing as a church to try and help you out here. Uh, In our weekend services, we are going to be preaching through several passages from the book of, of Ezekiel as we read through it. So that hopefully will be helpful for you. And as always, on the Bible Savvy Podcast, we're going to be taking one of the readings each week, and we're going to be talking through it together uh, with Eric and Nikki. And so you'll want to subscribe to the podcast if you aren't already so that you don't miss a week, uh, and you'll want to be discussing it with people as you go along. So uh, thanks for joining us today. And uh, as always, tell your friends about the podcast, and we'll see you next week.